So with me today is um, Hamish Clark, who is from the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment. Or maybe I should just start from the beginning and say, welcome to Science in a Cup. I'm Alexis Papanikola from the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment of the Western Sydney University. And with me today is... Hamish Clark, from the same place as Alexi, but also from the Centre for Environmental Risk Management of Bushfires at the University of Wollongong. So you work on bushfires, is that right? That is correct, yeah. I guess you could say I'm a bushfire scientist. And when you say bushfire, what do you mean by bushfire? It's uh, a very Australian term, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, I've become quite interested in the words as well of bushfire, which I can, I can give you a spiel on that later if you like. But a bushfire is essentially an uncontrolled fire in the bush. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a bush is also a very Australian word. It is, yeah. Because so, a bush for me could be a president of the United States, could right, be no, uh, no, a no, bush that's, outside that's been sculptured. Yeah, no, that's right. It does have multiple meanings. Um, it's it's vegetation. It doesn't have to be native vegetation. It could be a an agricultural paddock, but generally you're talking about forest fires, fires in uh, you know dry sclerical forests. Be modest. We're talking about grassland fires, grass fires. Uh, as you said, it's a very Australian term, and overseas they tend to use the term wildfire or wildland fire, which gives you a flavour of most of the time people are worried about large areas of native vegetation that catch fire from time to time. So this is in land that is not managed? Uh, well, it can be. So in New South Wales, somewhere between 8 and 10% of the land is National Parks Estate. Uh, and so you can get fire on National Parks Estate. You can also get fire off National Parks Estate. And so National Parks Estate is actively managed and you can still get fires there. Uh, the other coin, the other side of the coin of bushfires is um, uh, controlled fires or planned fires. And so one of the, the ideas in bushfire management is that if you set a fire on purpose under very specific controlled conditions, you can uh, change the effects of a later bushfire that passes through that area. Uh, there's less fuel for it. It is maybe less severe. It's maybe easier to control. So scientists are interested in those extremes when you get the massive events, which can be hugely damaging to lives and property and many other things. But they're also interested in the other end of the spectrum uh, in the cooler months, for example, when they can conduct these burns, how effective they are, what influences their effectiveness. So what are the consequences of these frequent small fires? Uh, well, that's a good question. So um, uh, different agencies have got different regimes of, of fires that they plan. Um, different states do things slightly differently. Uh, the records are kind of only maybe a few decades old. Uh, in some places, you know, you can go back a bit further. Uh, so I'm not sure what the actual impact of all the control burning is, um, personally. Um, but certainly part of the work that I'm involved in is trying to piece together what happens when we do a prescribed burn uh, do we see a difference in uh, wildfire or bushfire afterwards? Do we see a uh, difference in the impacts on, uh, you know, lives lost or property lost or uh, biodiversity, things like that? And you're also interested in the big, big events? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, these are the ones that get, you know, the headlines and uh, they're relatively rare, but obviously they kind of leave a bit of a mark in the psyche and, you know, the media is always very interested in them. We had big ones in the Blue Mountains a couple of years ago. There's been a number of kind of iconic big fires. And you often see in the first paragraph of any 
paper on bushfires. Australia is one of the most fire-prone continents in the world, and that's just something that uh, the researchers kind of... That's one of their starting premises is we get bushfires in Australia. So why is that? Why is Australia so bushfire-prone? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. If you look at a map of Australia and, say, a satellite product, you know, there's some satellite products which can detect fires. They're not perfect, but they, they do a pretty good job. The activity is far and away uh, dominated by fires in uh, grasslands and savannah in the Northern Territory and Northern Australia, whereas the image uh, you know, that I personally have had growing up and that I think is quite common in the community is of fires in forested areas uh, which communities like in Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide are, you know, often live very close to. Uh, but those fires don't happen anywhere near as often. The flip side of that is that they tend to be a lot bigger and more intense when they do happen. So you don't hear so much about uh, communities uh, and property loss and lives being lost in the Northern Territory, even though there's huge numbers and area burnt. Uh, but we have a lot of people that live close to the bush here and we have had a number of particularly bad fires in southeast and southwest Australia. I wanted to compare Australia with California. Mm -hmm. So in California, we hear the news every single summer, their summer, our winter. Mm -hmm. They have these massive fires and mm -hmm. they spend um, hundreds of hours, man hours, trying to control them. Mm -hmm. But it's a very different environment from Australia. So what makes California so bushfire prone or wildfire prone? Uh, certainly in terms of the most active areas, uh, where you get a lot of fire, but where there's a lot of research, you're looking at Australia, southeast, southwest, but also increasingly north. You're looking at western US, Mediterranean is another big one. Um, but then you don't hear a lot about uh, you know the rest of the world. Uh, although I'm sure there's many other pockets where there's fire is a major issue. South South Africa's one. There's some very prominent scientists there doing a lot of work on it. So I guess there's differences in the climate. There's differences in the vegetation, the terrain. If you're interested in what controls fire there's some interesting kind of theoretical models on what do you need to get a fire so there's this idea of there's four switches that need to be on uh, and you can have any one two or three of them on but unless all four are on you won't get the fire so those switches are one you need to have something to burn uh, you know some something flammable whether it's grass or forest or woodland and it's not just you know one tree it need, needs to be fairly kind of spatially continuous so that's something to burn. That's the first one. Then you need to actually have it dry enough to burn. So there's many parts of the world where there's plenty of flammable vegetation, but it just doesn't dry out often enough. Uh, so that's the fuel moisture. The next uh, is your weather conditions. You need to have the right conditions to help start a particularly spread a fire. So that's your classic hot, dry, windy. Uh, and then the last is the spark, the ignition. And that can come from lightning. It can come from a fallen power line. It can come from arson. Or when we do it ourselves, um, you know, it comes from humans on purpose. So state policy, how is it aligned in order to remove one of those four uh, aspects? Right, so yeah, if, if you think about it that way, you've got how much fuel do you have, how dry is it, what's the weather and what are the ignitions like? Uh, in terms of what people can control, uh, we can't really control the weather, although we're starting to play an interesting experiment with that nowadays. Uh we can't really control the moisture of the fuel. You know, I haven't seen any proposals to go out there and you know, wet the fuel in, in dry periods. So it's really about how much fuel there is. Um, ignitions, don't know how much you can control them. Um, you can certainly try to understand the patterns. Um, so 
I guess you could say fire agencies are interested in you know, the preconditions for fire, trying to understand where the risk is in the landscape, and then they're very interested in managing that risk. So they spend a lot of time trying to understand what they can do, how they can work with local stakeholders, how they can conduct these prescribed burns, what's the best use of their resources for fighting fires, things like that. So what's the contribution of a bushfire, a natural bushfire, to, say, pollution and climate change and CO2 concentrations? Is it a significant uh, component? Another very interesting question. Uh, I think it is a significant component in that people want to measure it. So there's been some interesting work done on modelling the carbon cycle in Australia and saying, okay, what, what are the sources of carbon? What are the sinks? And uh, I believe that they you know, we're pretty keen to include bushfires because, you know, they're a significant source. Uh, there's a general idea that um, bushfires are carbon neutral because whatever burns grows back, but I suspect there's a lot more detail uh, and, and nuance to that, particularly when you might get different species responding in different ways. So, uh, and then if you get some kind of transition in what vegetation is there, um or if you clear the land, it can't grow back anyway. Uh, so certainly people are interested in how fire might respond to climate change and vice versa. Um, there was a paper that just came out asking how important bushfire, vegetation, climate interactions were for climate projections. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I suspect they're saying something like, is it okay to kind of leave them on the side and say, well, we think it's getting hotter, so there'll be more fires, but we're not entirely sure. Or, or does it undermine our whole effort to, to project changes in climate and vegetation if we don't understand those feedbacks and dynamics? Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Hamish. Thanks for having me. And this was Hamish Clark from the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment, and this was Science in a Cup. And if you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you so much. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>